0: Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Turkey's sudden rise to prominence, courtesy of the Russo-Ukrainian War. We're going to talk about the unintended consequences of the sanctions which have been imposed on Russia. And then we'll get to the weekly update on the Russo-Ukrainian War. All that and more, coming up. All right, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, an Iranian missile strike on the U.S. consulate rocks northern Iraq. Iran claims the attacks were in retaliation for previous Israeli airstrikes in Syria. So we see the further escalation of the undeclared state of war between Israel and Iran here, and further proof that Iran and Syria are allies. So much so to the point that Iran regards an attack on Syria as worthy of retaliation, uh, as, almost as though it was an attack on Iran itself. So, the strengthening of the Persia Pact, and at some point, though, at some point, this has to come to a head, because now that Iran is firing back, as for a while, a really long time they weren't, not really, but now it's almost tit for tat. Instead of Israel would do, like, say, ten attacks, and Iran would respond once, now Iran is responding Almost one for one. We're getting to that point. And even before, it would be attacks on Iran itself. And it would be 10, then like one response from Iran. These are very rough numbers. But sort of give you an idea of how little pushback Iranians have given up till this point. But now, you have almost tit for tat, almost one for one response um, for provocation. And it's not even Iran that's being hit; it's Syria. So at some point, you gotta think, if we're ramping up these sorts of attacks and counterattacks, at some point, Iran and Israel have to hit each other. Like, I, there's, there doesn't seem to be a, a plan for de-escalation here, and there doesn't seem to be um, any sort of un. Not a unagreed, but sort of unofficial mechanism for de-escalation. Either it's not like both sides are very quietly backing away from shooting at each other. No, they're they're very openly going for the the kill shot. They're openly shooting at each other now. Um, so at some point this has to come to a heads, and you're going to see a, a full fledged war between these two at with the path that they're on right now that's what i see coming um something could change i mean i never thought i'd see arabia and iran reconciling but they're reconciling now so things are possible big change is possible but given Israel has shown no signs of even wanting to change. And now that Iran is becoming more assertive in the region, at some point, Iran is going to challenge Israel for its status as the dominant military force within the Middle East. And usually those sorts of confrontations mean military confrontations and a shooting war. And not the sort of undeclared state of war we have now, but legit troop-on-troop action rather than just shelling and missiles from far away. And in the event that that happens, I don't see Israel pulling off another Yom Kippur war or another six-day war. Uh, The gap has closed in terms of the population population. Uh, and as if Israel had an advantage of population to begin with, but the technology gap. Iran is getting much more precise munitions. Um, uh, before it, they would just use missile barrages and hope that they got the target with one of them. Now with this recent attack in northern Iraq, you see you're seeing like just a, a smaller number of missiles hitting a smaller area. So they're getting more precise. They're up there now. So it's not just a bunch of a barrage and you hope that you hit the enemy. No, Iran has legitimate capabilities to hit a target from far away, which means that they can hit anywhere in Israel, presumably that they wanted to with reasonably reliable accuracy. And with that being the case, that changes the situation for Israel because before they were the only ones with precision munitions. They were the only ones with precision guided weapons. Now Iran is closing that gap. Iran has more men, Iran has a larger army. Iran, to top it off, has allies. And is who who in this region can Israel rely on? Cuz America's preoccupied right now. If you haven't noticed from all the hysteria surrounding Ukraine, America's preoccupied, and at some point I imagine China is going to make their move for Taiwan. Although that's definitely what Trump is hinting at lately. With every interview, every time he comes on TV to talk to somebody, he brings up China and Taiwan. So I imagine he must be privy to something that I don't, or at the very least. His predictions are going to prove my predictions right, because I, I also anticipate that now that the cat is out of the bag with Ukraine, and now that that war has broken out, the domino can fall. Taiwan was not going to be the domino. I said that. I said that if there was going to be a domino that would lead to this sort of wider geopolitical struggle slash war, it'd be with the war in Ukraine. And now we have a war in Ukraine. So now we see. And if should China make their move for Taiwan, America's really going to be preoccupied. So what does that mean for Israel? Well, again, who in their neighborhood can Israel count on in the event of a war? They, who? Egypt? No. Greece? Not really. Not Turkey. Turkey just sided with the Palestinians like a couple months ago. They can't rely on Lebanon. They can't they certainly can't rely on Syria. Oh no that that's not even in the question. They're not gonna be able to rely on Iraq. Iran is the enemy. Arabia is having a rapprochement with Iran. And even Jordan allowed missiles to be fired from their territory into Israel during the last round of fighting between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Israel's going to be on their own and they're going to be crushed. Should things continue on the path that they're on. And we get to that challenging, that challenge issued by Iran to Israel over who is actually the dominant military power of the Middle East. Because I I, I keep saying Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East, but Israel has a potent military. But now that Iran is being more and more assertive and more protective of their sphere of influence to the point of using military force, eventually, that means they're going to come to blows with each other. And I think Iran's going to win that one. Maybe, maybe Israel does pull off another Yom Kippur or another six-day war. But I don't think they'll be able to pull that one off this time. And it might, depending on how things go, it might result in either the destruction of the Israeli state or an inversion of the power dynamics between Israel and Palestine, where you have Palestine getting... The borders within Israel being rearranged so that Palestine has the majority of the territory and the Israelis are made uh, to put on essentially a, a large reservation within the t- this territory. And you have a sudden reversal that favors the Palestinians. And even though the other countries in the region don't really care about the Palestinians, they can use it as sort of a justification for messing around with the in- the internal politics of Israel. Should they win the war. And that'll keep Israel. Out of out of their hair. For forever. Because the Palestinians have higher birth rates. So you're talking. Major consequences. If they lose this confrontation. And there's a really high chance. That Israel does lose this confrontation. But Israel. Is making no adjustment. They've gone. They had the chance to make the adjustment when they got the ceasefire with the Palestinians just a couple weeks ago. And they've gone right back to doing the things that they've been doing before. And But the situation has changed. And, but they've made no adjustment. So now they're running headfirst into a brick wall and it might ruin them. Which really? America's not going to be able to come to their rescue. America's preoccupied probably going to be even more preoccupied in a little bit. And depending on how things go with Ukraine and Taiwan, Americans might not want to go anyway, even if they aren't preoccupied, just out of, you know, Vietnam syndrome or Ukraine-slash-Taiwan syndrome at that point. I see Israel heading for a disaster of its own making. We'll have to wait and see, though. But that's enough about Israel and Iran. I just think that the changing dynamics in the Middle East. Have become something very interesting lately. But uh, right across the pond. Of the eastern Mediterranean. You have the Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis And the Turkish President Erdogan. Who have met in Istanbul. To talk about immigration. And territorial disputes. And uh, they talked a little bit about. What's going on in Ukraine. And used the situation in Ukraine. Or at least this is the Turkish present presentation of this situation, where they use the situation in Ukraine as a reason to start anew, get a a clean slate with Greece, and they've attempted to work out these issues that have been long outstanding, and, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't get something achieved from this, we'll have to wait and see, but that's what's happened this week, Uh, back up to the scene of the action, Russia has threatened the closure of the Nord Stream One pipeline in response to Germany's move to halt the certification of Nord Stream Two. So you get two for the price of one. Germany's going to freeze next winter. Luckily, we, luckily, we've just exited the winter this time around. So they have at least nine months to get their act together. Or find something to replace the gas that they've used up before winter comes again. Well, let's see if they do that. Or if they this results in disaster. Uh, yet another disaster of their own making. <clears throat> Just like Israel. But, well, let's watch and see on that one. Meanwhile, Russian and Turkish defense ministers have discussed the evacuation of Turkish citizens... Through these humanitarian corridors. And now these are the corridors which are being primarily uh, opened by Russia. As they've advanced through Ukraine. And they are also the primary reason behind the relatively slow advance of the Russian forces. As if you ever see those, um, those maps on YouTube. Where they do each day of the war and they show you how much land has been gained or lost. You'll see that Russia makes these really, really quick advances, and they just stop for days on end. And then they do another swift advance and then stop. That's because every time they take territory like this, they open up a humanitarian corridor. And what these are is they essentially let out civilians. They let civilians get out of the conflict zone. Again, Russia's going out of their way to avoid hurting and inconveniencing them. So they let the civilians out. They ask for the troops of the Ukrainian military to surrender. And they do this for like a couple days. Then they go in again. They start the fighting again. And then they stop again and open up another humanitarian corridor. And it's rinse and repeat. And they've managed to keep casualties really low, I think. I think the casualty figures for... The civilians in Ukraine are still below a thousand, or at the very least, I know they're below two thousand. The last time I saw was on week one, and the number was somewhere between 400 to 500. So, keeping in line with that, we're probably around the two thousand mark, uh, give or take. But, um, definitely better to see than tens of thousands dead as the russians blitzkrieg ukraine which they could do right they really could if they wanted to they have the numbers they have the military they have the total air supremacy people strangely enough are pretending that they don't have control over the skies even though they do i don't know where this comes from and i don't know where a lot of the propaganda surrounding this war comes from but i'll digress Russia has control of the skies, uh, they could just flatten every piece of resistance if they wanted to. They have the missiles, they have the precision-guided munitions, they have the firepower, they have the tanks, the armored vehicles to roll in like a steamroller and just... Ukraine wouldn't know what hit them if Russia chose to do to Ukraine what Germany did to Poland and France... Or what the United States did to Iraq. Twice. Russia has the ability to do it. They've just chosen not to. And the result of that is a slower advance, but lower casualties. So, again, very strange to think about when you think about war, but that's what's going on. Uh, where am I? Yeah, so. Humanitarian quarters, they're letting out the Turkish citizens, Turkey's defense minister is talking with them about that. Good things for a defense minister to be doing in the midst of a war. Meanwhile, representatives from Afghanistan, Qatar, and the United States have met in Antalya, which is a city in Turkey. They've met there to talk about the state of the Afghan economy and strengthening it, uh, strengthening it. Which, for me, is a bit of a strange topic, considering the the current state of the U.S. economy. Um, But, uh, I I guess, I mean, it's a good thing. But, you know, if we're going to talk about strengthening the Afghan economy, something that would be really useful for the Afghans would be for us to unfreeze their assets. But, uh, hey, that's just practical. That's me being practical again. Uh, I, I there's no way that Afghan, the uh, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and Qatar won't bring that up in these talks, and there's no way the United States is going to let them have it. So, I imagine these will just end up being us giving them billions of dollars in aid that goes nowhere good, and then they're still right where they are anyway so yeah i mean it, yeah, at least they're having to the talk but they're not i know for certain that the united states is not serious about this commitment and because again if they were serious they would unfreeze those frozen assets but they're not going to do that which leads me to believe that they're not serious that that just tells me everything i need to know about the state of mind of the United States going into these talks about strengthening the Afghan economy. They're not serious. That's just the immediate and obvious conclusion to be drawn. They're not serious. Uh, Meanwhile, there's riots in Corsica, uh, which is a small island owned by France. It's in the Mediterranean, uh, just southeast of France itself. Uh, So there's riots in Corsica over... What happened to Ivan Colana. Now, there was a prison fight. And there was a prison fight between Ivan and another inmate. Which left Ivan in a coma. And people are writing over this. He's a popular figure among nationalists in Corsica. So, yeah. Yet another headache for France to deal with. Meanwhile, uh, in Africa. You have the African Union calling for... An end to the fighting in Ukraine. Uh, Speaking of Ukraine. The refugee count is now somewhere between 3 to 4 million people. Those are some of the numbers that I've seen floated. I saw 2.8. I saw 4 million. So I I guess 3 to 4 million is an ample range. The number has gone up. And it will be interesting though. When uh, the fighting stops and we get some good numbers, some legitimate good numbers instead of the war hysteria data that we have to work with right now where you have to hack and slash through every word to get to some ounce of the truth. but it'll be very interesting to see where specifically these millions of people go. Do they go to Germany? do they go to France? are they going to UK? are they attending to get to the United States? Are they going to Russia? Now that Now Those would be some interesting numbers to look at. Uh, but uh, uh, I'll get to uh, Biden and his administration. As over the past week or so, they've reached out to Venezuela, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia for oil. They want their oil. That is the oil of Venezuela, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. The Biden administration wants them to import oil to America. Absolutely incredible. Uh, This is, in my view, the green agenda meeting reality. So, uh, and losing. They've met reality and they've lost. Uh, Oil has reached $120 a barrel um but in the midst of this cry for help from an administration that sabotaged the energy production here and is now asking for other countries to sell us more oil OPEC which all these countries are a part of oh, uh, OPEC plus Venezuela and Russia are a part of the OPEC plus OPEC plus Has instead agreed to continue production cuts. And their goal is to get back to 2020 levels of oil production. These people are going to make off like bandits. They're going to make off like bandits. And we, here in the United States, are going to be the only major oil producing nation to miss out on this boon. And... All because the Biden administration is determined to undermine American oil production. They've made that clear. They keep cutting leases. Like, we just got spec with higher and higher gas prices. We just got to 4 dollars 5 a gallon. And they were still trying to sue over land leases, uh, federal drilling leases. Uh so that these are leases where companies are allowed to drill oil on federal lands and when the courts struck them down, because they want at first they just wanted to make it more expensive to do, courtesy of like carbon policy and whatnot. Green agenda stuff. When the courts struck that down and said you can't do that, they just opted to shut the whole operation down and say you can't drill on these lands. At a time when we were already above $4 a gallon. And now they would like for me to believe that Ukraine is the problem. I think not. Ugh, it's very silly and very painful whenever I go to the gas station. Uh, <laughs> but, um, what else, how else am I supposed to put it other than they're determined to undermine our oil production? They, I could attempt to put it nicely. Well, that is nicely. <laughs> that is the nice way to put it. I, I could say that they're sabotaging. I can say that they're killing us all. But I'll just settle for undermining our oil production. And I, I'll just say that if I was playing a good old game of Civilization V. I would not be caught dead. doing to my economy and my resource production... What this administration is doing to America in real life. Uh, I'd be a superpower. I'd have my nukes at the ready. I'd have my oil pumping. And whatever tiny amounts of aluminum that the game decided to give me. While some tiny country gets everything. But whatever. Uh, That's just the way I play. Uh, But uh, I guess that's not the way that the Biden administration plays Civilization V. Or, that's not the way they play America. And I... I pay the price. But, uh, NATO, up in Norway, has conducted drills near the border with Russia featuring 30,000 troops and 50 warships. So. Lots of stuff going on. Lots of embarrassing things happening for a good old America. Uh... Uh... It's, it's a lot, uh, but luckily it gives me plenty of things to talk about that aren't just the Russo-Ukrainian war. So, uh, But we'll still get our update in. But that's the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat in just a minute. Alright, let's get into the meat of the episode. So, we're going to talk about Turkey, who has suddenly been shifted into the limelight. Turkey very, very suddenly jumped up in its importance in global affairs last week. Uh, they're They're serving as a neutral meeting place for foreign diplomats. They're holding bilateral talks with Greece to get a fresh start on their disputes. They're having meetings with Russia over the evacuation of their citizens from Ukraine through these humanitarian corridors that Russia opens up every time they take territory. Turkey has been busy this last week, very busy. And if you'll notice, all of these are pretty much regional affairs for Turkey. Despite the seemingly unrelated nature of the things that I mentioned earlier. Turkey, if you look at them on a map, their physical locations makes them a player in the Black Sea and therefore a potential player in the Ukraine. They have an interest there. They're a player in the Aegean Sea, which is the body of water between them and Greece, which is where most of their land and border disputes with them and Greece are over those islands and uh, maritime boundaries. They're, they're a player in the Eastern Mediterranean where they have disputes with Greece as well. <laughs> and they were the same place where they were shut down by France when they tried to start drilling for natural gas. Uh, they have that alliance with Libya, uh, whose uh, Libya is in a weird spot. But these places are all proximate to Turkey. And therefore, Turkey has an interest in them all. They have an interest in Ukraine. They have an interest in the waters between them and Greece. They have an interest in the waters between them and greece uh courtesy of crete the island of crete which is south of turkey to the southwest of turkey and that's where you get disputes over the eastern mediterranean and not just the aegean sea uh they're allies with qatar and they are technically only one country removed from afghanistan that country being iran so that's nothing small but there all these places are within turkey's reach. I mean if you remember back when uh, Kabul was about to fall, you had United States abandoning the Bagram air base. You had afterwards though, Turkey and Qatar reaching out to try to fill the gap with their own military force. In one of those air bases, either not Bagram, I believe it was the airport and Kabul, they're offering to send their troops there. After the the Bagram thing fell through, because they wanted to go to Bagram first, and then that wasn't an option that was taken off. The Islamic Emirates said no, and they offered to have troops stationed at the airport. The Emirates said no as well. They said no again, I should say. But uh, then they offered to just send in their businesses to open up business relations with the Islamic Emirate, and the Taliban said yes. So they wormed and wheezed. It took them a minute, but they found their way in, and courtesy of Turkish size and might, combined with the diplomacy of Qatar, these two are making for quite the wombo-combo, if I do say so myself. That That's what it's shaping up to be, as they get closer and work together more. And this was back when the, the Taliban first took back Afghanistan from the United States, and the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, puppet government set up by the United States. So, all these things... Uh, Economy, The economic situation in Afghanistan, the border disputes with Greece, the Turkish civilians in Ukraine, these are all regional disputes or proximate disputes to Turkey because all of these places are centered around Turkey. Even though they're really far away from each other and seemingly have nothing to do with each other, they all have one thing in common and that's Turkey And it's largely due to their geography. They're smack dab in the middle of it all. Which leads me to believe... Turkey has... A strong future, potentially... As sort of... The bridge... Between the East and the West. Because they have access to Europe. They have territory in Europe. A small piece of territory. They have an ally in the Middle East... They have economic interests in Afghanistan, uh, which they established immediately after the Taliban retook power. And even Russia consults them uh, about getting their civilians out there, instead of ignoring them and just bulldozing through Ukraine, which, again, the Russians could do. So, Turkey, where they are, makes them a player in all these places, and they have the The heft, in terms of population and economy, to back it up, even if their currency is in a bit of a free fall right now. But hey, the United States currency is in a less deep free fall. So far, uh, so uh, it, all things equal, you know. We'll, we'll see where this gets us, uh, but uh, either way, I don't imagine it's going to be somewhere good. But Turkish geography makes them a really strong player in a lot of places. And I think that they have a future being the bridge or maybe even just at the center of not just the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East, not just the center of those regions, not just the meeting place between Africa, Asia, and Europe. But, they could be at the heart of the Belt and Road. Because uh, it comes out of China, alright? And this is massive trade network all right, that the Chinese are building, with a whole bunch of other countries who have willingly signed on. Turkey, due to its geography, has the ability to be the bridge between all that economic activity going on in the East and in Africa and China, And in Southeast Asia, they have the opportunity to be that bridge between that and Europe. A place with already developed economies who are also heavily invested in trade with China. And China is heavily invested in trade with them. The interests align. The geography aligns. All that would be left Well, all that that is left, I should say, is Turkey choosing to be that bridge. And it would enable massive revenues for them just in terms of the movement of goods through Turkish lands. You're talking, you're talking if they're going by truck, you're talking tollways, that's money to the Turkish state. If they're going by train, you're talking uh, fees for their railroad services, that's money for Turkish business. If they're well, those, those are the only ways they can do. It. Oh, planes. If they're coming by, if it's trade by plane, you're talking using up Turkish airports, and Turkish airspace. That means revenues for the state, and you're talking again massive amounts of trade going both ways, and growing trade as countries in the Belt and Road project develop, even if to smaller extents than the project promises you're still talking lots of different countries so even if they only grow by what two percent each you're talking a hundred countries growing by two percent that's massive it's really really massive which means really really massive trade opportunities that could be funneled through the relatively small space that is turkey turkey has opportunity here and since they're being so active in their neighborhood, perhaps they might see it. Or maybe it'll just happen naturally. All, really all they have to do is to sign on to the Belt and Road. Uh, look at me. I I sound like a salesman for the Belt and Road now. But it's a possibility for Turkey. All right? It's a real possibility. They have the geography, they have the the economy, they have the population... They have the infrastructure already. They've been spending a lot on infrastructure. They have good roads. Maybe you update your rails. Maybe you get a high-speed rail or two. Maybe you update your airports. Who knows? Maybe you update your ports. Because lots of trade goes by water. Most trade goes by water, actually. But the possibility is there. Seeing them be so active in all these different places. And looking at where Turkey is on a map again... Made me realize how central they are in all of this. They're a real crossroads between Europe, between Russia, between Africa, between the Middle East, between, well, Asia. Because Asia has to go through the Middle East to get to Europe. They are the middle of middlemen. If they want it to be. But they have to make that choice for themselves. But the possibility is there. So that's Turkey, and now we'll jump onto these un. Uh, I almost messed up right there. We'll jump onto these unintended consequences of sanctions, uh, because as you all know by now, Russia has been sanctioned. They've been sanctioned hard. They've been sanctioned good and hard. They've been sanctioned super duper hard. Uh, we talked a little bit about it when they've been they've been hit by these sanctions, and a number of their banks have been cut off from the SWIFT payment system. They've, and now we were told that this was supposed to be the mother of all sanctions, uh, but it has not panned out that way. Now, for those who don't know, SWIFT is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It's an international payment system where you have transactions which are facilitated between the banks of different countries Uh, so the money goes through and it comes out the other end whatever the exchange rate is you get what you pay for essentially when you transfer the money and it smooths over trade between different countries who have different currencies and different values for their products and currencies so it it smooths over that process alright and so, Russia has been, not entirely, but a number of their banks, their major banks, have been cut off from this payment system. So, it makes doing trade with them internationally uh, harder than usual. Now, this is on top of all the other sanctions which have been placed on them since 2014. So, uh, again, you have the point that I brought up uh a number of months back, when bringing up talking about the issue of sanctions, they haven't worked. They really haven't worked against Russia since 2014 when we first started sanctioning them. And the easiest way to see that it hasn't worked on them is to see that their economy has been growing in spite of these sanctions. You know what I mean? Their economy has been growing. So if you're under sanctions and your economy is growing, What does that say about the sanctions that have been placed on you? Logic would suggest that it says that those sanctions are not as effective as they were intended to be. Because if your economy is growing, well, you're not really being punished, are you? You're just being inconvenienced. That's what it is. And that's all that is. Now, I've made clear that I don't like sanctions i think it's just cancel culture as a foreign policy and uh, i'm opposed to cancel culture here so why would i advocate cancel culture as a foreign policy it wouldn't be consistent with my position but i brought it up back then that the sanctions weren't really working but now we have this mother of all sanctions which is taking them off of swift which Again, this mother of all sanctions, which is taking them off SWIFT, was sold to us as, has not panned out that way. I talked last episode about rising gas prices, which were compounded by the war in Ukraine, not caused by it. And I, I mentioned the potential ramifications of Germany shutting down Nord Stream 2, the pipeline. Uh, so these are moves that were being made against Russia in retaliation for them invading Ukraine. But... Another development that has come from America and Europe, essentially trying to cancel all of Russia, has been a rise to prominence of alternative financial and trade systems. So the sanctions haven't worked, and Russia is now moving on to alternatives. Canceling Russia as as a society has failed it has failed since 2014 it's failed harder now when everyone was looking for the sanctions to do something Because in the lead up to this people legitimately saw sanctions as a means of destroying a country and for smaller countries it was, you have sanctions on Syria you have sanctions on Cuba on, on Venezuela and a whole lot of other small countries and it does really really hurt their and them and their economies But Russia is not a small country. They're. One the largest country on the planet. In terms of size. And two. They're a great power. Russia is a great power. They. I don't see how people thought. That you were going to. Tear down. A great power. With sanctions. But. I don't. I didn't see it. A lot of people thought that they did see it, but I guess they were wrong and I was right. So I'll just pat myself on the shoulders there. But um, it didn't make sense to me. And now that it's all this has come to a head and the cat is out of the bag and we can see that sanctions not only haven't worked, but that they're not nearly as effective as they were promised that they would be this mother of all sanctions. Russia's fine. Russia's just fine. You have a whole bunch of social media companies. You have McDonald's. You have uh, certain banks. You have certain companies saying that they're not going to do business in Russia anymore. They're not going to do anything with Russian people anymore. No Russia this, no Russia that. And Russia is just fine. At due, at least in part, due to the, uh, the high oil prices. Which help fund the war effort at this point. So they're going to get it back, uh, especially as these prices keep continuing to rise, because OPEC is cutting production, and Russia's not going to stop them. The United States could counterbalance that with oil production, but the Biden administration doesn't want to do that. They want to import oil instead of produce it, which is incredibly slow to me, but these sanctions are not working. The mother of all sanctions has not worked. And to top it off, Russia is turning to alternative financial and trade systems. China, who it has come to my attention, courtesy of some of my news sources, primarily rogue news, if you ever watch them. China has their own equivalent to SWIFT. It's called CIPS. That's C-I-P-S. Which stands for the Cross-Border Interbank Payment System. And to my surprise, it is already larger than SWIFT in terms of the volume of money that flows through it. Now, SWIFT, to sort of give you a perspective on how much bigger it is, which makes it strange that I haven't heard of it before, but I, shoot... I've never heard a lot of things, so I, I, I guess I'll just chalk that up to me not paying enough attention to these sorts of things. Just, uh, the downside to being a passive observer of geopolitics. But <clears throat> to give you an, an idea of how much bigger SIPs is compared to SWIFT, SWIFT sees around $7 trillion a day in transactions. So this is trade between countries. Whereas SIPs sees about $20 trillion a day in transactions. That is almost three times bigger. It is almost three times bigger than SWIFT. And this is the alternative that Russia is naturally probably going to turn to and do most of its transactions through anyway. On top of developing their own systems. Which is something Russia has said they're going to do. So that they have that degree of autonomy. And aren't just reliant on China. Which people think that they're going to be. Again not taking into account that Russia is a great power. And it seems to me. uh, This is me just making observations on the fly here. That people really downplay Russia. It's very strange to me. You know. Uh one, given the strength of Russia and that we're able to, we're able to see it we're, we're, They're in a war right now. We can see what Russia's able to do, and people are still downplaying them to the point where they think Ukraine's going to win this war. They're not, but that's what people think. But you have people downplaying Russia so much so that it's like, but they hold contradictory beliefs, mutually exclusive beliefs. And to give you an example, uh, maybe you'll have observed this yourselves, where they'll s- talk about Russia, all right? They'll say it's a-, a third-rate power. They're not nearly as strong as they used to be. They're a shell of the former Soviet Union. They miss being a superpower. They're not really a superpower. They're a regional power. They're in decline, all right? They're a declining power, too. Their population is shrinking, uh, and they're on, re- they're on track for... To being on the dustbin of history. They're irrelevant. Their, concerti- their security concerns are invalid. And don't need to be taken into account. Russia's uh, Russia has uh, legitimacy issues. And at home Putin is a dictator. And people hate him. And Russia is just going to collapse. Alright. People will say that. And then in the same breath. They'll turn around. And say that Russia is led by a madman. The Russian people are all evil. The Russian people are 100% behind Putin in his attempt to rebuild the Soviet Union, and Russia's gonna attack and conquer Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, (laughs) uh, parts of Poland. They're gonna take uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. They're gonna take Finland. They're gonna take Sweden, Norway. They're they're gonna take uh, all of eastern NATO, and... They're just going to be an omnipotent God country. Oh, but, but by the way, Russia's uh, losing the war in Ukraine because they have terrible logistics. They don't have air superiority over Ukraine either. So, uh, I'm, I've confused myself <laughs> trying to lay that out to you. I've laid it out the way that I want it to, but hearing it come out of my mouth confuses me just as much as it confuses me listening to it. But... You you certainly, you've heard these sorts of arguments and things said about Russia. And it's so strange because those are not compatible beliefs. Those are mutually exclusive. You cannot believe that Russia's losing the war in Ukraine due to terrible logistics. And that they're going to lose the war as a whole. And then say that they're going to conquer all of NATO because of their military might. You can't say that they're a declining power and that they, they just want the West's attention. They just want to be viewed as equals to the West and then market them as being the greatest danger to humankind since Adolf Hitler. It's, th- those are mutually exclusive ideas to hold about the same country. So it's very strange to me. But another observation on top of that wild observation is another observation where people, uh, this is based more on the underrating of Russia, the discounting of the Russian power, is people really view Russia as just sort of a, essentially walking into being a puppet state of China and being a the, an overrated gas station for China. But the way I see this, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a history nerd, people. The, the same, and these are the same people who talk about a, a Russo-American alliance to contain China because Sino-Soviet split, therefore China and Russia are not natural allies. These people um, miss that they're making the same mistake in judgment that people made about China. Because back in, during the Cold War... And this is before the Korean War. People viewed China. As a puppet. Of the Soviet Union. And no one thought that China would. Well no one thought that China wasn't a puppet. And that China was. Fully capable and fully willing. To pursue its own foreign policy. On its own terms and on its own timetables. No. No. People genuinely didn't think that that would be the case. They thought that they had to get the okay from Russia. And they had, they took all their marching orders from Russia. And that Russia was the country to, to beat. Turns out China sent in 400,000 men into Korea on their of their own volition. And pushed the coalition forces almost out of the peninsula. And it was the Chinese assistance to the Korean war effort... That got us the borders between North and South Korea that we have today. No one factored in China as an independent player back then. Everyone thought they were just a puppet of Russia and that they would always do what Russia told them to do. But now it's so interesting to see the flip, uh, so a flipped version of that perception being played out today. Where people instead view Russia as a puppet of China. And they think that Russia is just going to be subservient to China because they're increasingly leaning on their alliance with China as sort of a backstop with their confrontation with the West. And people really think that Russia is just going to be an overrated gas station for the Chinese to dominate the world. And no one views Russia as being capable of pursuing its own foreign policy and pursuing its own interests on its own timetables and on its own terms, even though the same people that lack, that lack that perspective and view them as a puppet, fearmonger against Russia so much as though they were an omnipotent god country. And it... It's a very, very strange dichotomy. I'll say that. It's very weird seeing all these mutually exclusive ideas being presented by the same people in the same breath when they're talking about the same country. Uh, Are they weak and on the verge of collapse or are they about to take over the world? Make up your mind. Make up your mind. (laughs) Um, But that's my observation. Uh, But they're moving away from SWIFT because they have a larger alternative which is SIPs. Again, SIPs gets three times the transactions of SWIFT. So Russia has alternatives and they're making their own. Uh, India has even thrown their support, passive support, but support nonetheless, they've thrown it behind Russia. And they've also made moves to use alternatives to the financial systems of SWIFT so that They can do trade with Russia. So you have India, China, and Russia essentially circumnavigating and circumventing the sanctions which have been put on Russia. Meanwhile, uh, while the Russians are able to bypass the effect of the sanctions, the, the harsher effects, the countries imposing the sanctions are dealing with ridiculously high gas prices because... Europe doesn't have oil. Europe doesn't have natural gas. The United States has both of those, but we have an administration that doesn't want us to have our own resources. It's incredible. So we have ridiculously high gas prices that are rising. We have inflation that's rising. And we have the added embarrassment of a policy, of a, a, a failed foreign policy, that has ended up strengthening russia more than anything because they're not hurt by these sanctions and they're just going to become more immunized to these sorts of attacks on them economic warfare by western countries probably won't be anywhere near as effective on russia from this point forward as it has tacitly been in the past i mean again We haven't seen much of an effect since 2014 when the sanctions were started. So, if sanctions have had much of an effect, if at all, it wasn't much. And even that is going to be reduced further by Russia's self-reliance and their reliance on countries that don't sanction them, like China and India. So, these are the unintended consequences of the sanctions. Uh, Obviously, they were not taken into account by the people who placed the sanctions on them, Uh, but those are the sanctions. Meanwhile, we have the Russo-Ukrainian War. We'll do a little brief little update here. We are on day 17. The siege of Mariupol continues with reports that the city is now running low on food and water. And rumors that it is approaching... Capitulation to Russia. The Nizhyn pocket, the Nizin pocket. Uh, however, I'm gonna pronounce that I still haven't decided. The Nizhyn pocket has nearly closed, with only the cities of Chernihiv, uh, Chernihiv, and Nizhyn itself being encircled so you have these two cities in the north of ukraine this is north there was a, there used to be a big pocket it's not a very big pocket anymore and, and in fact it's two pockets centered around chernihiv and nizhyn these two cities are encircled and are being put under siege we'll see if they last as long as mariupol and troops from those encircling maneuvers in the north have started closing in on kiev from the east meaning the new surround kiev is beginning to tighten i have heard some reports that russia has encircled the entire donbass region already although i'm not entirely sure if those claims are true or not but i'd imagine we'll find out if they are soon enough Um, once that encirclement is complete the ukrainian military is essentially done that's where most of their active duty forces, that's where most of their good forces, their elite forces are at. That's where most of their battle-hardened forces are at because that's when the fighting has been in the Donbass. So once that force is encircled, you're talking uh, effectively an end to resistance, meaningful resistance by the Ukrainian military. Because this is week three. Right. There's no way Ukraine's going to be able to mobilize their reserves fast enough to get them into the field. And even if they did. They'd just be flattened by Russian munitions. Ukraine doesn't have the time. That they need to mobilize properly. And quite frankly. They don't have the ability. To fight back properly. Against Russia right now. Looks like the L. Um, so there's that. I've uh, heard reports. For the time being, though, for the time being, though, the Russians have opened up more humanitarian corridors for people to get out of the conflict zone. Open these up. And uh, very nice. Again, it's very jarring to see such a humanitarian approach to war if there ever was one. But here we have it. And I think I've worked out how I think ukraine looks after the war i think all of it uh, is going to be incorporated into russia in some way shape or form that's my belief and what i think is going to happen you're going to have four territories carved out of this crimea is going to be annexed into russia proper but you're going to have four sort of autonomous regions within russia uh because ukraine's going to be a part of russia that's my belief so within the region of West Russia that we call Ukraine, you're going to have the Luhansk and Donetsk Republics in their full-size iterations. So that the full oblasts will be under their control. They'll be autonomous regions within Russia. You'll have the Novorussia, which is everything east of the Dnieper River, plus the Odessa region. So, all of that will be incorporated into the that I've heard about and heard lots of speculations about as to how other people think the war is going to end. People think the war is going to end there. Um, But while I do see a sort of territory being carved out of that, a new administrative zone being carved out of that, I should say, uh, for the more pro-Russian parts of Ukraine, I still Again, I see all of Ukraine being annexed. So, from there, you're going to have the rest of Ukraine, the western part that's west of the Dnieper River. That part will also be a part of Russia. But it'll be an autonomous region within Russia. So, all of it will legally be a part of Russia. But Ukraine, I imagine, is going to mostly be a a collection of autonomous zones that the Russian military guards over and are all nominally under the governance of the Kremlin. And in that scenario, Kiev can still be the capital of the much shrunken Ukrainian semi-state uh, within Russia. Because uh, if it's an internal boundary within Russia, then the Dnieper River, because parts of Kiev are on the, uh, the eastern bank of the river, even if if it's... Uh, even if that's the case, uh, since it is, uh, you would have an internal boundary. So it wouldn't be as much of a hassle as it would be if you carved off the parts east of the river from Ukraine proper. In which case you'd be taking parts of the city of Kiev with that. But if it's an internal boundary within Russia, well then it sort of works itself out. So that that's how I see the war going. That's how I see the conclusion. That's what I see... Happening to Ukraine when all this is over, uh, they get broken up into four pieces. You get you, you get West Ukraine, you get Novorussia, you get the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and Crimea gets annexed into Russia proper. That's how I that's how I see it. The post-war map of Ukraine looking, and of course this will all be internal boundaries for Russia. So. It'll all look nicely on the map. But once you look closely, it'll look like four states within Russia. That's how I think it'll go. But, um... Uh... We have some interesting lies to talk about. Some interesting lies. Um... Because this is another observation as things unfold with the Ukraine situation... Uh, this is more focused on the American government here. So, uh, the lies segment. <laughs> biolabs. Biolabs. Heard a good bit of talk about biolabs. Now, Russia, before, accused the U.S. of operating biolabs in Ukraine. The U.S. denied this. It denied this fervently. But, there's a reason I call this the lies segment. Because within a week, we've gone from the bio labs don't exist to we are afraid of Russia getting their hands on them. We, we've gone from they don't exist to Russia's going to use bioweapons, uh, the we- these weapons of mass destruction. They're going to use them on the Ukrainian people. And they're going to cause mass devastation. They're going to use them on NATO. They're going to they're use bio we- biological weapons. And we've even got uh, Jim Stoltenberg, who's the head of NATO, claiming that Russia's going to go even further beyond and use chemical weapons too, as if bioweapons wasn't enough. It, now, if you believe that Russia's losing the war, all right. if you put yourself in that frame of mind, if you aren't already, if you believe Russia's losing the war, then these sort of claims might be easy enough to believe. Uh, if they're losing, they it it's believable that they would resort to these desperate measures, like unleashing chemical, or even biological weapons, because no price is too high to pay. Uh, for Ivan the terror, uh, uh, Joseph, St- uh, uh, Putin, no price is too high for Putin. Uh, and you, national pride is on the line. You can't lose a war to Ukraine after denouncing their existence as a state. That, But if you're in that frame of mind, then it's easier to sort of swallow that Russia would resort to these sort of measures. Uh, us even discounting that the biological weapons stuff would hurt their own troops in the process. But I'll digress. Now, on the other hand, if you believe, as I do, that Russia is actually not losing the war, and is instead currently winning the war, then the question to be asked is, why would Russia use those types of weapons if they're winning the war conventionally? Which, the evidence, I would believe, suggests that they're winning conventionally, given that wherever Russia has gone within Ukraine, Ukraine has so far failed to push them out. Uh, there is no major Ukrainian offensive here. It's all defense for Ukraine and all offense for Russia. And Ukraine does not have the strategic depth that Russia did against Napoleon or against Germany. Uh, they they lose half their country. They're not getting that back, especially if the Russians can hunker down behind the river. So, if there's going to be offensives, it's going to chop chop you got to get to them but uh, ukraine has not gotten to those offensives i don't think they have the capacity to do so even though they technically have or at the very least had at the outbreak of war numerical superiority to russia russia's using uh 200,000 or less troops whereas the ukrainian military has 200,000 or more cuz they're mobilizing reserves so if you believe russia's losing these claims of biological and chemical weapons potentially being used might be believable. If you believe Russia's winning, you why would they use them? Uh, those are the two sides. The two sides of the argument. Uh, I, I've stated where I stand. I'll digress. But back to the whole biological weapons thing. Um, there are people in the U.S. Congress... Who are now worried that Russia might use these labs to make bioweapons. Now. Remember, remember, going back. These labs didn't exist. Just a week ago. They didn't exist. But. Now we have people in US Congress who are worried Russia might use these labs to make bioweapons. But. But. A little bit of critical thinking here, if it's that easy to take a biolab and go from supposedly harmless research to weapons of mass destruction, if it's that easy, then it begs the question, why did we have 30 of these labs in a country that was on Russia's border? If it's that easy to go from harmless research to weapons of mass destruction, why did we have 30 of these labs on Russia's border? And if these labs are harmless or just doing research, then why did the government of the United States lie about their existence? Something smells rotten here. But I have a feeling we'll find out in the not-too-distant future. But as for today, that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Some lies are being exposed. Some weird hot takes are being cooled down by the force of logic and reason. And major moves are being made in international finance. So the world is very definitely changing, folks. But as always, we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.